you are dismissed. Thank you. I enjoy so much watching all of the kids leave, but as many are leaving, some are coming in. And so we have another couple who is bringing another child into the world. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, now. Oh, you don't know who it is. Let me see. Where are they? Where are they? The grandma's doing this. These grandmas are very, very pushy. I don't understand grandparents who want to push about their grandchildren. <laughs> Patrick and Jennifer Mahoney, y'all stand up. All right. Of course, Cake Man stood in next to me back there. I don't know where Cake is. If he's out in the foyer, hey, Cake. He's here. You're in here this morning? Now, that's a new morning. Cake is with us this morning. But Eddie is the grandpa standing next to me this morning. Hey, you heard I have another one coming up. I mean, the man has the audacity to, to brag about how many grandchildren he has. Congratulations, guys. Wonderful, wonderful. By saying that, we are glad that children are being born into this church. So don't leave thinking we don't like this. <clears throat> One more thing before we get into the world and word, and you might be turning to 1 Peter chapter 8. Who said 8 over there? That was Waggersback, if anybody said anything. <clears throat> It's always these troublemakers in the congregation who want to make sure that we're doing the right thing. Can you imagine it? The oldest lady in the world is among us today. July 9th, yesterday, Watson was 92 years old. Stand up, Watson. All right, Muriel. Now. Now, don't sit down yet. Don't sit down. No, don't sit down. I'm going to put Matt to shame. We're going to sing happy birthday. Stand up. You can stand up that long. Come on, stand up. I'm going to put Matt to shame. Ready? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Muriel. Happy birthday to you and many more. Wonderful. <clears throat> it's always exciting it's always exciting you know we only have two or three folks in the congregation who are in their 90s and I think they're all women now, I don't know what that says <laughs> the men are being driven to early graves or whatever oh not by the women did you think I meant that Farrell Green is saying, 
Pharaoh, your wife is sitting next to you. She, she just saw that. Hopefully, those of you who are visitors understand this is a family, and we love one another. I don't know if they love me, but we love y'all. What? Don't let Mike start preaching. We'll be in big trouble. Well, for those of you who are visiting this morning, my name is Peter Davidson, one of the pastors here on staff, the least of the pastors, I assure you, but it's exciting always to bring God's Word to us. If you'll be opening to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. And as we continue in this study of 1 Peter, let's remind ourselves that the apostle has, is writing to a church, to the people of God who are experiencing quite a bit of suffering in their lives. Is there anyone in here who is in any way not suffering? Because if you'd raised your hands, we'd have gone and resuscitated you. <laughs> Life will produce suffering. The difference for us who are believers as compared to those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin and have eternal life as a consequence. For us, sufferings that we are experiencing now within the context of our obedience and submission and walk with God, and even if we don't do it that well, is a redemptive process, building us up, building into us the very fiber and strength of God himself. The suffering of the world is a foretaste of the condemnation and judgment that is coming. Everybody suffers. And if I'm going to be on one side or the other of the issue, thank God I'm on the redemptive side. Thank God I'm on the redemptive side. See, I'm only almost 68, and I haven't gotten to this age without any suffering, mostly because of me. But thank God the Holy Spirit is so faithful. He hasn't jumped out of this body <laughs> because of anything in or about me. But every time there's an issue in or about me, he's not only not jumped out, he's embraced me more firmly. Is that true of you? So this morning, we continue with this this much-needed message concerning the realities of our lives that touches each one of us exactly where we are. And Peter, you remember, has already said that the issue in this letter, and he relates it 
I'm sorry, he refers to it in chapter 2, verse 9. At the end of the verse, you know, we're a chosen people, royal priesthood. Why? Why has God done the great work that he's done? In order to, that we, in our lives, through it all, in the midst of it all, through it all, that we would be a people who would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so that's the umbrella under which we want to view all of our sufferings and all of the circumstances of our lives. In any and every circumstance and activity and trial and blessing. Now you may think by blessing I mean just the good things. Blessing meaning whatever it is that God is bringing and allowing into our lives. In all of this, the primary issue is this. Is my life, is my reaction, is my dealing, is my relating in some way continuing to proclaim the excellencies of this great God who has come in the person of his son to save us from our sin and from his wrath. Father, this morning, Father, continue the great work of exonerating your name in us by proclaiming the greatness of your grace in the midst of the vileness of our sin. Father, showing how much greater your grace is than anything and everything that we could do to the contrary of forgiving, adopting, securing us into eternal life and transforming us in these bodies during this time so that one day, Father, we may stand before you as your beloved and welcome-homed children. Father, we thank you for whatever means you choose to bring into our lives, knowing that you are sovereign, knowing that you are good, knowing that you are powerful. Father, knowing this, for we have seen and experienced it in the Lord Jesus, Father, we embrace your will because we know it proclaims your greatness and blesses us. Father, continue that work in us this morning, we pray, as we study through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've just gone through, you remember, the three categories in which Peter has addressed the church concerning the specifics of submission within some difficult categories in which we would be able to proclaim the excellencies of God. The lives as citizens, our lives as slaves or workers, if you would, in the workplace, and our lives as husbands and wives. And this morning we continue with this same thought, the same thought. Nothing has changed. We're moving the thought along. And so let's read together chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and to do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So let's go through this particular section of Scripture verse by verse. First, verse 8. Notice how he starts verse 8. Finally, all of you. He has been addressing three groups of people in the church. The people of God who relate and how we are to relate to government officials and government authorities. The people of God and how they relate to being slaves, mistreated even by these masters. And then the people of God as they are married, husbands and wives within those contexts. And you remember, underneath all of everything he says and encapsulating everything that he's been talking about is this primary issue of submission. This word that is so difficult for us, that is so distasteful to us because of the flesh's desire to rebel and to have it my way. And now he says, let me address everybody in the church. I just don't want, if you weren't married and if you weren't under a, you know, a master and if you weren't worried about how to relate to the government officials, let me capture everyone in this. And so we gather the entire church to all of you. No one is exempt from this instruction. So what we're going to talk about this morning is God's word to each one of us who are saved. If you are saved, if you are in Christ, if you are a child of God. Everything that is in this text is personally and directly for you and for me. None of us escape. Now, that's true all the time in the Word of God, but at least this time, Peter makes sure all of you. So now, Peter is applying his teaching to the entire church where the handling of suffering is so central to the health and the stability of the church. And especially in those days, suffering was accentuated because of the Roman Empire and the treatment of believers under the rule of Nero. But suffering is still pandemic in our church, even last week after the service. Two ladies came up having been diagnosed with cancer. Just last week, and we prayed for two. And there's meant much, much more in this congregation, some of which we know and perhaps a preponderance of which we're not aware. And so Peter is talking about the health and stability of the church as to suffering. How are you going to deal with the issues within the church and the issues in the world? So what he does, he sets forth five ways that are to characterize their behavior with one another. Sets forth five areas Five ways that we are to relate to one another. So let's look at it. He says, first of all, all of you, what? Have unity of mind. Unity of mind. The Greek word for this is harmony. Harmony. Now, any of those of you who are musical people understand harmony better than the rest of us who know very little or nothing about music. So he says, let's live in harmony with one another. You see, Wayne Grudem defines harmony as the sharing, sharing the same thoughts and the same attitudes. You know, harmony occurs when our minds, when our minds 
What do I mean by our minds? My attitudes, my desires, my motives, my thoughts. My mind encapsulates all of that. Harmony occurs when my mind or our minds together are set upon and directed by the same goal. That's when harmony occurs. Now, what is that goal that Peter has set forth in this particular letter? The goal of our harmony collectively is that we as a church, Lakeview Christian Center, the church of Jesus Christ around the entire world, the church during Peter's day, all believers at all times, harmony means that all of our hearts and our minds are set upon and directed by the very same goal, and that goal is that we might proclaim the excellencies of our great God. This is the goal. Any other goal is going to miss the mark and bring in division. And so you see, whatever occurs among us, whether in the family, whether in the church, whether at the workplace, whatever it is, but especially within the context of how we relate to one another, is my goal, is my mind set upon and driven by this goal of showing how excellent God is. Now think about your life. Think about how you are relating to others in this church. Especially think about how you're relating to that person who didn't treat you so nice the other day, who said something about you, or who forgot about you, or whatever the issue might be. Whatever the issue is, are you setting your mind upon and are being directed by the issue or the goal of being excellent, showing forth the excellencies of God? You see, because when we stand before the Lord, guess what? He's not going to say, well, yeah, I understand how she treated you, man. I'd feel the same way. He's going to say, why wasn't your handling, your relationship set on me? On me? Why? You see, I have set my heart on you, I have given you everything. I have poured out myself to the uttermost for you. Couldn't you set your heart on me in these really minuscule, insignificant issues? That's what he's going to be asking us. What is the goal? The goal is the excellencies. How will the world know how excellent is our God unless they hear the symphony of God in the church? You see, I can liken this, if you would, to an orchestra. All the members and everyone in Christ if you would, is an orchestra member. Some play the violin, some play the trumpet, some play the violas, some play, you know, the, whatever it is. Every one of us plays a different instrument. Every one of us has peculiarities and differences and dispositions and gifts, etc. Every one of us. But you see, all the members play their individual instruments, but they play them interdependently, not independently. See, that's why Matt being great in wisdom, has never asked me to be a member of the praise choir. 
I mean, the only way he would want me to be a member of the praise choir if he says, look, can you sing solo? And if I sing solo, then he would let me be a member of the choir. But I don't sing low. I sing loud. Each one of us here is to function not independently, but interdependently. We are holding hands. We are locking arms together as the great church of Jesus Christ, the army of God upon the world, in the world. There's no such thing as an individual, if you would, in relation to the way we are to function within the body of Christ. All individuals functioning as a coherent orchestra. You see, each person in this body, in this harmony, plays his part, but all are playing from the same score. We all have a part to play. I play mine a little more loudly than my wife does, although my wife can be loud occasionally when the score says be loud. Some of you play your part carefully than maybe someone else, more, you know, gingerly. Some are more aggressive. But the point is, what is the goal? The goal of the orchestra is under the direction of the conductor, the Holy Spirit, to come together and with all the differences and the distinctions coming together, play in a way that it is such harmony that the world sits there and says, we can't believe that the composer was so great creating such a magnificent tune. You see, we are to be showing forth the excellencies of the composer, not how excellently I play the violin or the trumpet. Together, we show forth the excellencies of our composer, Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Because we're like-minded. We are serving the same goal. The goal is the excellency of the composer and the Score is that which controls us. It is his word, and we all come together upon the word, and it's like the score. And all of us see this, and all of us begin to play our individual parts within the context of being submitted to and walking according to his word. And when that happens, not allowing any diverse, um, any uh, uh, difficulties to separate us and for me to play my tune a little differently I don't like this page I'll skip it and go to the next page and I'm going to play this part rather and you can imagine what kind of discord that would be the composer would never get the accolades are we that kind of a church is there anything or anyone in this church that would cause you in any way not to be in harmony with someone else. If there is any reason you can think of of not to be in harmony with someone else, go to the Lord and repent of sin. I didn't say, is there something wrong with the other people? I'm sure there is. But that should never drive me to respond in disharmony. It's primary. Now, having explained the necessity of harmony, Peter is going to give us now four other ways to relate to one another in order to proclaim the excellencies of God 
you may want to call these the sections within the orchestra. Aren't there sections, Matt, in an orchestra? This section, the brass section. So these may be some of the sections of the orchestra. First of all, well, let's continue to read. It says, finally, all of you have humility of mind. Sympathy. Sympathy. The Greek word for sympathy is sympathis. The word soon means together. Pathos means misfortune. Together and the word misfortune. So sympathy means standing with one another or standing with another in the church who is experiencing misfortune, who is suffering. You see, in order to do this, we first have to know who is suffering. And so the ears, uh, the antennas of our ears and eyes should always be open. Open, looking, and discerning who is suffering. Not allowing my circumstance to be so preoccupying my vision and my hearing that I don't see or hear what's going on in your life. You see, when Jesus came, this man suffered. But never did he allow any of the suffering or the attacks or the circumstances or the lies or the beatings or the crucifixion itself ever in any way cloud his vision to our suffering. In the midst of it all, he was keenly aware of anything and everything that I needed, that you needed. Sympathy is coming alongside of someone who is suffering. I might say, you may not know this, but sometimes I struggle in this area of having sympathy. Especially in categories for which I haven't experienced a particular issue. And it's just very difficult to to get into the circumstance of another when I haven't experienced it. Does anybody else have that? Am I the only one here? Every man should raise his hand here. (gasps) We all have it. I mean, women are built differently than men emotionally. You have an easier time of getting into the sympathy. The men don't have as easy a time. So what do I do? I ask God. Father, give me a heart of sympathy in this category. I ask God for that. Now, I hope that when he does, he doesn't cause me or someone in my family to experience the thing that I should have sympathy for. But that's God's choice. You see, sympathy is the Lord's drawing out of our hearts, drawing us out to the person's plight to the problem and the suffering and whatever is happening in that other person. He's drawing out our hearts to that person so we will be able to have an appropriate level of understanding and response. Sympathy is not just, oh, yeah. (laughs) Sympathy has a goal. The goal is certainly the excellencies of God. But you see, Jesus just didn't stand there and say, oh, I'm so sympathetic. You're going to hell. Mm, that's too bad. Mm, man, boy, that's, that's tough, man. Mm. Of course, you brought it on yourself, you know, ding, ding. But, oh, really. The sympathy 
was his joining together in our feelings, in our situation, our, our plight. So that he would be able to effectively deal with our plight. So sympathy isn't just me sitting there with my hand in my mouth thinking how bad it is that you're suffering. It's preparatory to something else. It is the opening of a door to the next thing. You see, if we are experiencing sympathy, we're doing what Jesus, what is described of the Lord Jesus. Remember in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Look around in your own family. Look around in your own backyard, in the church. There are difficulties that are in this building of our making and not of our making. The point is not that it was your fault or it wasn't your fault. The point is, are we allowing the Holy Spirit or asking and seeking from the Holy Spirit a heart that would be able to be touched in some way with the plight and the suffering of another? Or am I too quick to do what I often can do easily? Be disdainful of, you know, (laughs) or be critical of, or even condemning of. This says so much about the heart of God, doesn't it? The sympathy. See, when a member of the church is hurting, we are playing, are we playing the instrument or the, are we playing in the section of sympathy or are we ignoring the pain and playing our own tune. I'm going to skip the brotherly love and go to the next one because I'd rather do it that way. Have a tender heart. Do you see where it is? Tender heart. Or yours may say compassion, a heart of compassion. Do you see what I've done? Okay. Don't want you to get confused. I did this deliberately. Because you see, I want to connect sympathy and compassion. I want to connect the two. So in the word, there is another description there, but I want to just jump over it, and you should have it in the notes that way. Sympathy and a tender heart, compassion. See, compassion means when we feel, what we feel turns to mercy. Compassion is the activity that is the result of my feeling sympathetic And as a result of that, God begins to do something in my heart that causes me to want and even to be able to move in his mercy to the ministry of whatever is needed. Compassion. And you know, when we talk about sympathy and compassion... How many of us guys know this? This is not where we live. Any man in here, this is not where you live? Come on, come on. Am I the only guy who struggles with being sympathetic and compassionate? Come on, guys. Are you here this morning? 
You see, men struggle with this. Be sympathetic. Be compassionate. That sounds like girl stuff. Feminine stuff. It sounds like that. Or it could sound like that. It might sound like that. It certainly sounds like that perhaps to the world. But let's listen to this scripture. Where the mightiest man in all the world had sympathy, he was touched, and he moved in the compassion and mercy. So those of us who may think it's not manly, let's look at this mighty man in John 11, verse 38. The word says this, then Jesus, remember Lazarus has died, deeply moved, sympathetic, came to the tomb. He was moved, sympathy, and moved him to compassion, mercy. You may wonder, why am I feeling sympathetic to that person or to that or to that circumstance? Ask God, is this preparatory for you using me in any way at all of extending your merciful power into that situation? Ask him. Don't assume it isn't. He may not do it that way, but it may be that he is doing it that way. So Jesus moved deeply in himself. Remember, he wept a couple of verses before. He cried. A big grown man crying. The mighty God crying over the devastation of what sin and death does to his people. And he comes to the tomb, so they took the stone away. Remember, roll the stone out of the way. Get the thing out of the way. It isn't that he could have gone, and it would have happened. But he wants the participation of the whole orchestra together in his work of showing forth the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous grace. So everybody gets a part in this. And Jesus lifted up his eyes heaven and said father i thank you that you have heard me i know that you always hear me but i said this on for the sake of those who are standing around here that they may believe that you sent me and when he had said these things he cried out in a loud voice i like that word loud he didn't whisper came to the darkest tomb looked into the blackness of death itself this man is angry Angry that death has put its cold clutches on one of his children. How many of you have ever been angry with death when a loved one has died? Angry. We should, as believers, be angry with the issue of death. Because our God is a living God. And he is angry. And death is going to get the biggest hit in the face and go down on this one than it ever did have before. And in a loud voice, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Sympathy, compassion. You see, that's what God wants among us as his people. Like-mindedness begins to create a context and an activity And a receiving of that activity of sympathy and compassion. So if someone comes to you with compassion to serve you and your needs, it is very demeaning to the grace of God for you to say, no, thank you, I'll be okay. You see, that's the other flip, and we don't have time to talk about that, Keith. It's okay. I don't don't need it'll be okay. 
This is God moving in mercy to you and you learning to be able to, by God's grace, to receive mercy from someone. My wife would tell you, for years I have had difficulty in receiving mercy from other people because of the way my background and my personality, whatever. It was hard for me to receive mercy, to receive gifts. It, it just put me on the spot. I felt awkward. Brotherly love. You see where we are in the verse? Brotherly love. It comes from that word where we get Philadelphia from. Phileo, affection, Adelphos. I mean, Phileo, yeah, that's right, affection and Adelphos, brother. He says, brotherly love. Now, that means sisterly too, remember. Okay? In other words, love for the brethren. You see, in this command, what Peter does, he captures the essence of how we are to relate to one another. And actually what he does, this is kind of like the trunk of the tree. It's a trunk of the tree. Because, you see, out of a humble mind, out of a mind of unity, comes the trunk of brotherly love. And the branches then are sympathy and compassion and other activities. Brotherly love, it very much encapsulates the whole issue here. Why am I submitting to this, this, this uh, why am I playing in this orchestra, playing these tunes? It's so difficult for me to learn. I don't know how to play an instrument. Where, you know, I'm squeaking, but I'm learning, and there's so many hours in, in a training, whatever. Why? Because I love the composer. Because I love the composer. That's why I'm submitting to all of this, so that I'm being trained to be an instrumentalist who will play my part of the score in such a way that I'm going to play it excellently. Why? Because I love the composer. And because I love the composer, guess what? I should love all of those who were in the orchestra with me. But my problem is, when you are playing better than I am, I may be jealous of you. <sighs> How does he learn so quickly and it takes me so much time? Brotherly love begins to say, whatever God is doing and however he's doing and whatever gifting and whatever opportunities and whatever is happening in the church, we are all members of God's family. You see, the peculiarity of this orchestra is this is the orchestra of God's family. And each one of our lives is playing our tune according to the score. And we ought not to be jealous or competitive or disdainful or critical of the way others are learning and where they are, where, where they are in their learning. Because it is God who is the conductor. And he, as the conductor, is responsible for where that person is and how that other person is learning. It is ours together to show sympathy and compassion, to love and to care for one another and to encourage one another and to minister to one another, but never to tear down one another, to be critical of one another. This is a family orchestra. Let's turn to 1 John, maybe in your notes as a reference, 1 John. You see, love for one another is critical and is the very heartbeat of God himself in this church and in his family. Listen what the apostle John tells the church in 1 John 3, beginning with verse 11. He says, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
Now, we should stop right there and probably have an altar call right there. There are issues between people in this church. The issues of jealousy, issues of anger, issues of resentment, issues. And we're allowing the issues of life to be smirched, the excellencies of God as we play a contrary note or tune in his orchestra. Love one another. Love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. I'm not sure if I put down the right verses I wanted to. Oh, here it is. Verse 4, verse 7. Oh, well. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. See, brotherly love is the clearest and most compelling message of the gospel. You know, this church loves Alpha. Amen? Amen. How many of you are here because of Alpha? Where the rest of them? No. So, <laughs> we love Alpha. One of the reasons we love Alpha is because we love evangelism. And yet, Alpha is one of a minor set of activities of evangelism compared to loving one another as the single greatest message of the power of the gospel the world will ever see. Love the brethren. Care for one another. Minister to one another. I need to move along. If you want a description of what that love looks like, just turn, maybe not now, to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to the beginning of verse 8. A humble mind. A humble mind. Do you see where I am? A humble mind. Is an attitude that does not exalt itself. It is an attitude of mind that allows one to play the part given to it rather than to seek another part, trusting the wisdom of the composer. What part are you playing? Do you enjoy the part? You see, the point is not do you enjoy the part that you're playing. The point is, does God enjoy your playing the part that you have been given by him? So let's not think, well, I don't enjoy this, I don't know, whatever it is. That's not the question. It's are we functioning the way God has given us to function? Is he enjoying the way I'm playing the clarinet? Or is he holding his ears and can't stand this noise? Thankfully, it says make a loud, what, joyful noise unto the Lord. You see, a humble mind is the very essence of Jesus' ability to save us. Jesus humbled himself and he became as a servant and submitted himself 
to obeying God, even to obedience to going to death on the cross. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Jesus humbled himself. Humble mind and the unity of mind are, I think, together in this. So Peter starts it off with the harmony or unity of mind and ends it with a humble mind. Harmony and humility are together in this. You see, the humble-minded person will allow God, God to decide our place in the orchestra. And with joy, we'll give thanks to God. Why? Because I'm in the orchestra. Can we just be thankful to God that I'm in the orchestra and get past all this other silliness? I'm in the orchestra. I don't care what I'm playing. I don't care who I'm sitting next to. I don't care what part. I don't care how I'm playing as far as essential joy of being in the orchestra. Now that I am in the orchestra, I want to give all of my being and joy and energy and concentration to playing most excellently. A humble mind will see and serve the needs of others. A humble mind will be exalted by God. Remember 1 Peter 5, 5, God gives grace to the humble. Well, let me move along in this a little more quickly. This is Peter's instruction to the church concerning its relationship within the body. Let's talk about how our, what our response is to the world, to the evil in the world. Anybody know that there's evil in this world? Anybody know that? You watch the news yesterday, today at all? Look at the newspaper. You see, Peter has shown them how to respond to the suffering within the church, but what about their response to the evil world? Well, let's look at it. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. In fact, I won't go into any. We know what it means to repay evil for evil. How many of you don't know what that means? How many of us are good at repaying evil for evil? Anybody in here with me reviling? Hey, you should, hey, and then all of a sudden, he said, don't do it. Yeah, but you don't, don't do it. Yeah, but don't do it. You see, now that's difficult enough. But what he does next is horribly difficult. Wait, you mean to tell me I'm not only not supposed to revile and to speak evil back. You mean to tell me I'm not only supposed to be just, not, just passive. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to hold my mouth. I'm going to grit my teeth. I'm going to be, okay, thank you, thank you. I'm, you know, but no, I'm not only supposed to be passive. I'm supposed to be aggressive. I'm supposed to bless. Huh? Say what? <laughs> At least I didn't say anything back. God says that's just the least of it. That's the least of it. It is easier, it is pretty easy not to say anything or to revile. It's passing difficult to turn around and face the reviler or the evil person and bless them. Now, I think that's difficult. I think it's downright hard. Listen to this. Our response to evil is supposed to be the same response as Jesus' response to us when we were his enemies. The next time you think that you shouldn't bless someone when they've done wrong to you, you remember you received the greatest blessing of all when we were the enemies of God. Jesus Christ died for our sin while we were yet enemies. 
He took my evil and he embraced me into his kingdom. He blessed me. What a powerful way of showing the excellencies of our God. How unique and utter scandalous this God is. It's scandalous, if you understand what I mean. You see, we're supposed to reply with a blessing rather than a curse. Now, you may not curse. You know, most of us are pretty refined. We don't curse. But the attitude and the sound that God is hearing from our heart, you just soon say it out loud, brothers and sisters. You just as soon say it out loud, God, this is how I feel. That person, I know, oh, I wouldn't do that. Well, you're doing it with your heart anyway. So at least let's not be hypocrites. Let's go into the bathroom, put a towel over our mouth, and start yelling curses. At least let's get it out of our bodies. <laughs> There was a fellow in this church years ago, not in this church, the church we came from. All of a sudden, I developed a real anger and hatred toward him. There was no reason we really didn't know one another very much. I didn't like this guy. You know what I did? I actually went into the bathroom, covered my mouth, and started telling how much I hated him. And the Lord finally got the stuff out. You know how you have to go, in order to... And the Lord then began to fill me with a real care for him. I don't know what was going on, but to bless. Why are we to bless? Look at the rest of the verse in 9. For to this you were called. What you mean called? Ain't no one told me this when I went to Alpha. If Frank had told me this, Franks, where are you? Brother, you didn't tell him this. You didn't tell nobody that when they get persecuted, they're supposed to bless. Did you tell them that? It's a secret. <laughs> I mean, really, it's a secret made known only to the Holy, by the Holy Spirit to those who are in Christ. It's a secret. We're called to do this. In saving us, God has called us to bless rather than to revile. For those of us who don't like this idea, let's ask God to undo the call and take us back to where we were before. I don't like blessing people when they hurt me. Well, just ask God, could you erase my name from the book of life? How many of you would ask that rather than one? Anybody? <laughs> What's the result of blessing? That you may obtain a blessing. Blessing to obtain. You see, the blessing here is a blessing of eternal life. Peter's already referred to this as an inheritance in chapter 1, verse 4. I am to respond to these people in a way that my response will be used by God to bring them eternal life. I'd rather go to hell. Anybody in here, when somebody does something to you, you really kind of secretly want them to be condemned forever? We don't think like that, do we? Surely not us. Surely not us. In verses 10 to 11, Peter gives a reason for living, for giving a blessing. He quotes from verse, uh, Psalm 34. He gives a reason. Listen to this translation from Thomas Schreiner. 
He talks about giving the blessing that you will be blessed. For anyone who wishes to experience the life of the age to come must shun evil speech and do good to all in order to receive that blessing. You see, the proof that we are in Christ is literally the way we respond in these issues. It's easy to come to church. Oh, brother, how you doing? It's so good to see you. I love you, everybody. I love everybody. I love everybody. Everybody, my friend. I just hate these three people who are sitting over there, you see. And I know we laugh. But unfortunately, it's true within the context of this church or any church. And this filth, this degradation before God needs to be cleansed away through our confession and going to the Holy Spirit and asking him to cleanse us and overcome this in our life so I may live in a way that does a great work for your name. I don't like getting mistreated any better than anybody else does. And I'll lash out as fast as anybody else unless or until the Holy Spirit get a hold of me. And I want him to do that regularly. And I need that regularly. So what is our response? Not passive but active. Listen, we are to shun evil and do good. We're actively to shun evil. Get away from those lying lips and all that stuff and that speech. Stop it. And we're to do good. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do good. You see, our responding with God's grace would be one of the most powerful means, if not the most powerful means of evangelizing the lost. Matthew, remember, 5, 16. Let your light so shine before man that they may see your good works, the way you relate within the church, the way you relate outside of the church, the way you relate within the context of suffering, the way you relate within the context of doing well. Let all of this be your light so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Verse 12, Peter underpins all that he said with these words. He said, here's the big deal. Here's what's going on. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Every one of us in this room, God's eyes and ears are on us continually. Continually. His eyes are upon the righteous and his ears are open to our prayer, our life. Our petitions. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Evil what? Not showing sympathy. Evil. Not being compassionate. Evil. Not living in brotherly love. Evil. Playing disharmony. Evil. Not being of a humble mind. Evil in that context. He didn't say murdering and adultery in this context, although those are evils. This evil in this context. Certainly other evils. But he's talking specifically about this this morning. It's called evil evil and we don't want to live evilly do we see why care for one another why respond to evil with good because the Lord is ever watchful because you see God is looking for his orchestra members to play the kind of symphony that the church and the world and the heavens and the demonic powers and the angelic hosts will be able to see and hear and experience the excellencies of our great divine composer. May he find us 
in this church to be that kind of a blessing to him. Amen. I know we have a, a busy morning this morning and uh, a meeting afterwards, lunch available for the youth, but I was, a little, I was a little troubled by something Peter said, and I don't want us to, no, I'm not going to correct something you said. I was troubled of the reality of something that Peter said, of there being relationships and people here in the midst of the family of God where there is being housed in our hearts ill will toward one another. And he mentioned that and I don't feel comfortable just skirting past that as though, hey, that's normal. If you're Christian, you're gonna be offended. If you get in close proximity to others, they're going to offend you. They're going to hurt you. And, and you're going to want to walk off into a room and scream and say something terrible about them. Now, that might be your experience. But continuing to let it be your experience is unacceptable. So I'm not comfortable letting us escape this room without you having to look God in the face and to discover whether that's true about you. Now, being one of the pastors, on occasion, we get to meet with people in the church who have those feelings about somebody else in the church. We do our best. Don't always do well, but do our best to try and steer people back to those relationships in a godly way. And that only happens when it finally gets to us. Sometimes we don't ever get to hear. And sometimes, in spite of meeting with folks, people leave those meetings and still don't make those issues right in their hearts. Brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be. So can we stand together and allow the Holy Spirit to help us in this category. And I want to read a passage to you. This passage is screaming at me while Peter's walking through the text there in 1 Peter. It's a revelation of the heart of God concerning our unity, and it comes from the prayer of our Savior in John chapter 17. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly 
one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Whew, there's a lot at stake in whether or not we love one another, isn't there? So much so that it is perhaps the top request of the Son of God in sending his church on a mission that we love one another the way in which we have been loved and the way in which love exists in the Godhead, that we would be one in the way in which God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one so that we might proclaim his excellencies into this world. Father, I pray for us this morning. Lord, it is always an intimidating and weighty thing to hear that your mission, your mission of redemption, Lord, your purpose to rescue this lost world is in any way connected to us. For, Lord, your redemption we we handle in our lives with great carefulness. Lord, we, we are so grateful that you found us in your mercy, and you saved us. And Lord, with great respect, Lord, we gaze upon this work, this mission of redeeming lost men and women. And Lord, we are sobered. Lord, we are truly sobered by the idea that the way in which we are one and the way in which we proclaim your oneness, the way in which we love one another and the way in which we proclaim your love through our love to one another, is a means through which the world will know you, will know the Father sent you, will validate your mission in hearts today. Lord, that's sobering. Lord, some of us got some petty offenses, petty in light of that, that we won't let go. Someone said something. Someone did something. Someone failed to do something. Someone let us down. Someone disappointed us. And we have refused to live in harmony with that person. We have withheld love for that person. Lord, that kind of stuff ain't blowing anybody's mind in this world. Nobody's impressed by the God that we serve when that stuff is in our lives. So Lord, this morning, I pray, Lord, make us uncomfortable right now. Make us uncomfortable to the point that we will not leave this day without significantly dealing with those issues. Lord, we will not lay our heads on our pillows tonight and go to sleep as though we can just go on. Lord, no, we cannot go on. For the declaring of your glory is awaiting our humble response. You have loved us with an amazing love. We have been undeserving. Lord, we are the disappointers. Lord, we are the ones who fail. Lord, we are the ones who have done to you what we never should have done. And yet you have come to us with grace and mercy abounding to the chief of sinners. Lord, how? Can we not extend that love and that mercy and that compassion and that care to others? Lord, may it be that we are not a church 
so disconnected from the realities of what you've done for us. So Lord, send us from here today appropriately disturbed. Lord, I pray that you not let us have rest if these issues remain in our hearts. You would move us. And you would restore the proclamation of your glory through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.